If you've got your Bible, why don't you go ahead and open to John chapter 8. The Gospel according to John chapter 8. We're going to be continuing in the series that we started last week through the so-called I Am statements in John's Gospel. So today we'll be looking at the second statement. I am the light of the world. Just such a joyous statement. As we are a joyful people, especially this morning, I think it's so appropriate that we get to, get to think about Jesus being the light of the world. So everybody there in John chapter 8, you got it? If you don't have your Bible, we'll put the words up on the screen. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through our whole passage today, verses 12 through verse 30, and then we'll talk about it. So this is John chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. In your law, it's written that the testimony of two people is true. I'm the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Now these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says where I'm going, you cannot come. And he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. This is God's word. Amen? Let's say a prayer. God, I thank you that you have given us so much to celebrate, your faithfulness to us as individuals, your faithfulness to us as a church. God, your faithfulness to us to not leave us in the dark, but to shine the light of the sun that you sent because you loved us. God, I pray that we would behold that light new today. God, I pray that everything that I say about you would be true And I pray that everything that we think about you would be acceptable in your sight, God, because you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
Amen. So if you were with us last week, you'll notice that the structure of the text that we're in today is, is almost the exact opposite of what we looked at last week. Last week was this really long discourse, this debate, this dialogue that Jesus is having with these people. And, and that debate kind of builds and grows on itself until it sort of reaches a crescendo in which Jesus makes his I am statement. And in this text, we have the I am statement at the very beginning and then the debates following. And in this case, it seems like the debate is almost a distraction from the statement. But we'll see as we look into that, that that's actually not true. And at the very end of that passage, we get this wonderful statement that many believed in Jesus. Many believed in that statement that he made at the beginning. So that, that structure is kind of going to be how we, we work through the text today. Beginning in uh, verse 12 where Jesus makes his claim in your outline. So last Sunday we looked in chapter 6 at uh, the, the statement that Jesus makes that I am the bread of life. And that came in the context of him feeding a multitude of people, something close to 20,000 people. He miraculously feeds with, with uh, just five barley loaves and some fish. And these crowds come and, and as they hear from Jesus' teaching, as he tells them that he's the bread of life, the bread that came down from heaven from God. He's the real manna pointing back to the book of Exodus and that they have to eat his flesh and drink his blood in faith. Uh, as this crowd hears him teaching that, they, many of, most of them leave. At the end of the chapter, if you kept on reading, uh, there's just Jesus and kind of his core group of disciples. All of those multitudes have left. In chapter 7, we see more crowds. Only this time they're not coming to hear from Jesus. These crowds have gathered into the city of Jerusalem for, uh, for a festival, a Jewish religious holiday called the Feast of Booths um, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And, and the Feast of Tabernacles, it's really one of my favorite, uh, favorite things to learn about in the Bible. It's, it's kind of for the Jews, it would have felt to them like if you took our Thanksgiving and Christmas and put them together. It is the high point of their year. It's a seven-day holiday. Could you imagine? <laughs> a seven-day holiday. That would be awesome. And what they would do for this holiday is everybody would come into Jerusalem and they would build tents, like rickety tents. And they would live in those tents for all seven of those days. And some of you that don't like camping, you're like, that sounds awful. But it was, but it was special. It was, uh, it was also a harvest holiday. It came right at the end of the season of grain harvest and grape harvest. And so here are the people of Israel. The weather is much nicer in this time of year. And they've got all of this food. They've got all of this wine. They stay up late living in their tents and going and visiting their families and friends that they haven't seen in a whole year in these other tents. And they play lots of music and, and they just have a wonderful time. It is, it is so, so joyful. Well, why do they do that? Why did God command them to keep this festival once a year? Why did God command them to be so joyful? They were supposed to remember through that holiday the time when Israel, the people, didn't have a land to dwell in and they lived in the wilderness in actual tents. And God lived with them in a tent in the tabernacle. They were supposed to remember all throughout that festival that when their people had been wandering around in the desert for 40 years, God never left them. 
God provided for them. God gave them bread from heaven. He gave them water from a rock. And so they would meditate on that truth that God didn't leave us then when our ancestors were in the wilderness and he's not leaving us now. And so at the, the high point, the great day of that festival, the priest would, would fill up a cup of water from the pool of Siloam and they would do a big parade through the whole city and then he would dump out the water. And that was to represent, to remind them that even when they were in the desert, God gave them water. And even that year, God had given them rain for their harvest. And it was at that moment in the festival in John chapter 7 and verse 37 that Jesus Christ stands up and he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's so beautiful. It's not an I am statement, but you can see what Jesus is saying there, right? That just as God was with you in the wilderness, I'm with you now. And I am the provision of what you need, the Holy Spirit. And you say, well, that's all great, but that's chapter 7. I thought we were in chapter 8. But let me, look, I went to seminary. Okay, so I'm going to, chapter 7 comes immediately before chapter 8. Okay, that one's for free, all right? You can have that one. No, the reason that I share that is where our text picks up in verse 12, most commentators think is actually happening in the exact same context, at the same festival, maybe even on the same day. So that same day that they're doing this water ceremony and Jesus is standing up and saying, come to me if you're thirsty and I'll give you water that will never run out. On that same day, he makes his claim. And the reason that that's uh, probably right is another aspect of that big festival is that on that day, the, the Jews in the temple, actually in the treasury of the temple, an outside kind of court, they would set up four 75-foot lampstands, 75 feet. And then it would have these giant torches on the end that were, that were fed with like buckets of oil and the wicks were made from the clothes that the priests had worn out over the last year. And they would, they would light these ceremonies as they're singing songs and they're pouring out the water and, and this court would be lit up with these really bright lights. And that was just, just like the tents and just like the water, that was to remind them too of the time in the wilderness when God led Israel by a pillar of fire that reached up to the sky. This, this pillar of fire that led them and protected them all the way until they went into the promised land. And so they were trying to recreate that. But, but it was even more than that. They would have lights everywhere. Light was a major theme. That's why I say that this, this festival felt something like Christmas too. Because we string up lights at Christmas time. There's lights everywhere. And light for the Jews at this time had come to take on uh, so many different symbolic meanings. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that light is maybe the most common metaphor that comes up again and again. They would talk about God's glory as being like a bright light you couldn't even get near. And, and they would think about even that God was the one that spoke light into the darkness, that God is the creator of light. But then they would, they would say that God's word, his revelation was like a light that illuminated the path that the people of Israel were supposed to walk on. Light became a symbol for salvation. Psalm 27 says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? There's a light in the dark. I don't need to be afraid. If you were to read the prophets, and the prophets would describe what, what the day of the Lord and what the end of 
history would look like, they would often use a metaphor of light, especially the prophet Zechariah. He says that, that in the end, there will be no darkness. It will just be daytime, all the time. And that's a vision that the prophet, the, the apostle John picks up in the book of Revelation, isn't it? If you read all the way at the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 22, he describes the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth, and he says that it is going to be a, 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 an earth where all of the, the causes of darkness have been removed. There's no more sin, there's no more sickness, there's no more sadness, there's no more war, there's no more death. It's all away, and all there is is light. But, but he says it's beautiful. There's not a sun. God is the light. That's, he says, that's where everything is going. God's plan is going to fix the whole world and there's going to be not any more darkness. The prophet Isaiah, too, makes a special use of this metaphor of light in connection to the Messiah, the Christ that would come. In Isaiah chapter 9, which is, which is verses that we rightly read every Christmas, or we ought to. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, Isaiah describes the Messiah's coming. He says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. In verse six he says, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He says, we, Israel, are dwelling in darkness. We've been conquered by our enemies. We are still enslaved to our sin, but there's going to be a day when light shines on us through a baby. And that baby's gonna grow up and he's gonna be our king. And he's gonna rescue us, Israel. But not just Israel. Isaiah also says in chapter 49, this is God speaking to his Messiah. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So God's plan for Israel and God's plan for his Messiah is not to just save Israel, but to save the whole world through his Messiah. They used to say about those 75-foot-tall lampstands that came up out of the temple. You think about Jerusalem as, as a city on a hill, on a mountain. And so these lampstands are the highest thing. They're shining this incredibly bright light. And they say that that light would just shine down on every courtyard in Jerusalem and illuminate the mountains that surrounded Jerusalem. It was a picture of God's light through his people Israel shining out into the whole world through his Messiah. So keeping all of that in our mind, and, and there's so much more that the Old Testament says about light and that promise that God is going to shine a light that will go out into the whole world. You think about these big menorahs shining this big, bright light, and then in walks Jesus. And he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's cool, right? Isn't that, isn't that amazing? And, and it's so obvious what Jesus is doing, isn't it? Right? I mean, remember, this is an I am statement. We talked about that. So, so even that phrase, I am, is, is 
calling back to Exodus and Jesus saying, this is me and my divine identity revealing myself to you. This is what God is like through Jesus. And, and he's bringing in all of that Old Testament language. Jesus is standing up and he's saying, I'm your Messiah. I'm the one that's gonna save you, Israel. And I'm the one that's gonna save the whole world. This is not reserved just for the Jews. Salvation comes from the Jews, but I'm gonna take this everywhere. I am the light of God's word. I'm gonna one that's gonna teach you the right way to walk. I am the light of God's glory. John chapter one says, no one has ever seen God, but Jesus has made him known. It's so obvious but not to everyone. Where Jesus stands up, makes this claim, you'd think that that would be it. Instead, it's kind of like the record scratches. And for the next 10 verses, verses 13 through 29, we have these Pharisees, the religious leaders, the people who ought to know better, the people who uh, most of all should have recognized the light of God. Instead, instead, they challenge Jesus. They don't challenge Jesus on his claim. They don't even deal with the substance of his claim. The word light never comes up again in the rest of these verses. It's like they're not even listening. They challenge Jesus on his right to even say that about himself. So in verses 13 through 29, we see Jesus' authority is challenged. So is that, is that it? Are we done with that metaphor? Are we done with Jesus' I am statement? Now we're going to just deal with the Pharisees? I don't think so. Like I said, this I think is intentional, this structure. What we get in these verses after Jesus has just said he's the light of the world is a, is a tragic, vivid illustration of someone that's still in the darkness. And the consequences that will come to those that don't walk by the light of Christ. So look at verse 13. The Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. The Jewish law had developed at this point very clear categories and, and there was wisdom in this that no one could be condemned of a charge on, uh, other than on the basis of two witnesses. And they've kind of applied that and misapplied that and so they say, Jesus, you can't just say that about yourself. Jesus says, oh, yes, I can. And here's two reasons. He gives them two reasons. The first is that light is self-evident. So in verse 14, Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I come from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh, but I judge no one. He's saying, he's saying, in effect, regardless of whether or not you think this is true, this is true because it's true. I don't know if you picked up on these. In these, in these 10 verses, there's a lot of law court language. There's a lot of legal languages. Uh, bear witness, judge, testimony, law. It's like we're in a court scene. So I want you to imagine, if you will, like a really dramatic court scene like they have in the movies, Right? And somebody has said something and everybody starts arguing. The lawyers are arguing with each other and the jurors are like whispering to each other and the judge is banging the gavel, you know, order, order. And they're arguing about whether or not the lights are on. And, and the witness is sitting in the witness stand and he's like, the lights are on. What else, do you, what do you want me to say? They say, you can't say, what right do you have to tell us that? Where's your evidence? He's like, the lights are on. So Jesus is saying, I know where I came from. 
I know this is true. If you can't see that the lights are on, it's not the light's fault. Your eyes must be closed. But Jesus gives him another reason. He says, in fact, he's not bearing witness by himself. He has another witness. In verse 16, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it's not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it's written that the testimony of two people is true. I'm the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. What does that mean? That could refer to Jesus' baptism. Do you remember in the baptism, Jesus goes into the water, he comes out, and, and the witnesses there saw the Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove and a voice from heaven. God the Father saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. John the Baptist says as much in chapter one of this gospel. He says, I saw the spirit. I saw the dove. That was God telling me that he was who he says he was, the son of God. God bearing witness to Jesus. But what I think it actually would, would refer to more is the miracles that Jesus has been doing up to this point. So the book of John divides kind of nicely into two big sections. The first section ends at chapter 12, and, and a lot of commentators call that the book of the signs. Because all through those first 12 chapters, Jesus is doing lots of miracles, okay? Up to this point already, just where we are, we see he's turned water into wine. He's healed an official's sick son. He has uh, raised a man that, that couldn't walk. He says, get up and walk. And the guy gets up and walks, He's fed that huge crowd with all of the bread. He's walked on water. And then there's lots of signs that he's done that that John just didn't write down. But in chapter 5 of this gospel, Jesus says in verse 36, The works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. In chapter 9, right after this, there's the story of Jesus healing the man that was born blind. So Jesus gives sight to a man. And I think that's another vivid real-life illustration of this text, of Jesus being the light of the world. There was a man that says, behold, I was blind, and now I see. And, and he's walking around, he's testifying to Jesus, to Jesus that healed him. And the Pharisees, these same guys, start asking this man, well, who is Jesus? Because Jesus healed them on the Sabbath. So again, they're getting caught up in a technicality of the law. But they say, well, what do you think about Jesus? And, and he stands up and he says, look, I don't, I don't know who this guy is or where he came from. But in verse 33, he says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To him, it's self-evident. He's saying, God doesn't grant to to horrible sinners the ability to do these miraculous signs. So Jesus has to come from God. He has to be right with God or he's doing these signs. And that's what Jesus says. Look, these things that I'm doing bear witness to me. I come from God. I do the works that only God can do. My father is my witness. And in verse 19 of chapter 8, the Pharisees say, well, where is your father? Again, some different opinions about what this could mean here. They could be talking about Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus, the virgin that conceived and and bore the child, Emmanuel. They could be talking about Joseph not understanding that Joseph only seemed to be Jesus' father. We've already seen some confusion about that. So they're saying, okay, 
if Joseph bears witness to you, where is he? Bring him in. We'll hear what he has to say. But I don't, I don't really think that's what they're talking about. I think it's more likely that they understand what Jesus is saying. They understand that he's saying that God is his father, which to them was blasphemous. They say, where is your father? Bring him in so we can hear him testify to you. We don't hear God. And Jesus says, that's exactly the problem. Still in verse 19, he says, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Look at verse 21. He said to them again, I'm going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin, and where I'm going, you cannot come. Where is Jesus going? He's saying, I'm going back to my Father. And Jesus is laying before these listeners two paths. He's saying, I am the way to my Father. I am going back to my Father, back to God. This is the way that you, Israel, have been seeking all along. I am the way to God. I am your Messiah. I am going back, but you, Pharisees, you're going to miss it. You're going to keep on seeking. You're going to keep on seeking the Messiah. You're going to keep on seeking the way to God, not realizing that he was standing right here in front of you, and you missed it. And so instead of going and following Jesus to God, you are going to die in your sins. And that's, this, this is some of the harshest language that Jesus has used up to this point. To die in your sins is, is to miss every opportunity. As long as you are alive, you have the chance to see the light, to repent, to confess your sins to God, to say, I want to be right with you, God. I want to have a relationship with you, God. I recognize that Jesus is the only way to have that relationship with you, God, and and to believe in Jesus as the light of the world. As long as you are still alive, as long as it is still called today, you can make that choice. But as soon as you die, that's it. You have missed your opportunity. It's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, Hebrews says. And that day, when you die, if you have not followed Jesus, you'll know. You'll know that you made a mistake. You will see Jesus for who he is, the light of the world, and you will be cast away from him. And this is, this is not me saying this. Jesus says this. Do you remember how Jesus describes hell? Outer darkness. In that place, there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus is saying, this is the path that the Pharisees are on. They are going to die in their sins. In verse 22, the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. That's more misunderstanding, but this time it's very ironic, isn't it? John is a really ironic book. I don't know if you've picked up on that, but, but they're right in a sense that it will be through death that Jesus is going back to the Father. But it's not suicide. It's actually them that are going to kill him. It's them that are going to work out the plan to have him crucified, but they're right that it will be through death. They just don't understand. Verse 23, Jesus says to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, or really 
in Greek, this would better be translated just unless you believe that I am. You see what he's doing? Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And so they said to him, who are you? And Jesus says to them, man, if you have to ask, you'll never know. I am who, who I've been saying that I am from the very beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. I think verse 27 really sums up the whole interchange. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Verse 28, when you have lifted up the Son, then you will know that I am. Lifted up, that's a phrase that John uses repeatedly in this gospel, and it's a double entendre. It's a play on words. Jesus will be lifted up. He will be physically elevated to be hung on a tree on the cross to die. That's going to happen. But, but more than that, he will be lifted up in exaltation. The cross is where Jesus will be displayed in his fullest glory. The glory of the cross, the glory of the resurrection, the glory of Christ going back to the Father through that death. That means he's not going back alone. He's going back with all of those who have followed him and have believed on him. It was on the cross that the light of the world died. You remember what happened when Jesus was hung on the cross? Darkness for three hours. That was the darkest day in history. Jesus taking your darkness, your sin onto himself on the cross, experiencing that outer darkness. That's why he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was cut off from the light of God. He was dying the death that each of us deserves to die. He tells the Pharisees, you're going to die in your sins. But for all of us who have believed in Jesus, that was Jesus dying in your sins so that you wouldn't have to. Jesus lifted up the glory of the cross. And they took him down, his dead body, and they put him in a dark tomb, like a cave. And then they rolled a big stone in front of it. There in the ground, his body lay. Light of the world by darkness slain. Then, bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine. He is alive. And all who follow him, who believe in him, will have that light. But I, I wonder, okay, is anyone here still in darkness? 
When you hear me say these things, are you even now challenging my authority to say these things? Because look, my authority to say these things only comes from Christ's authority. It's not me you have a problem with. If, if your heart is grumbling right now when you hear me say these things about dying in your sins and going to hell, this is God talking to you. You have a choice. You are still alive as long as that heart is beating in your chest. Some did believe. We've seen Jesus make his claim. We have seen the Pharisees challenge his authority. And now we see in verse 30 that many are convinced. Look at verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. That's a short verse, but don't miss what that's saying. Jesus standing up and saying, I am the light of the world is glorious. This is the second most glorious thing in this passage. Some there that heard Jesus talking about who he was, talking about where he was from, talking about their father. Some people saw that and they saw the light and they believed in it. And they were saved from their sins. They were saved from death. That's beautiful. That's amazing. And, and I hope that everyone in here has been convinced of the same truth, that, that Jesus is the light. And what I want to do for the last few minutes that we have together is I want to consider what, what that means for us who have seen Jesus as the light, that, that it is so obvious to us that, that Jesus is from God, that he's the light of the world. I want to I think about practically what does that mean for us, that Jesus is the light? How are we different because Jesus is the light of the world? And there is so much I could say about this. Like I said, this is, this is one of the most common metaphors in the whole Bible, but, but I've limited myself to three. I have three applications for us to walk away with as we meditate on Jesus being the light of the world. So the first is that biblically, the symbol of light often represented moral purity. Moral purity. The best example I think of this is from 1 John. So not the Gospel of John, which we've been reading, but the first epistle from the same guy. So 1 John chapter 1, the Apostle John says this. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. My, I've got a three-year-old daughter named Everett. And she goes to the Sunday school here, and uh, I don't know which of her teachers taught her this, but, but she memorized this verse in her Sunday school class. And so we would ask her, okay, Evie, what's, what's 1 John 1, 5? And she would recite it, and every time she would say, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Every time. Just like, it's like that's the only way she can say it. She's right. So we ask her, we talk to her about this Bible verse. We say, Evie, does God ever disobey? No. Does God ever break his own commandments? No. Does God ever do anything bad? No. And neither does Jesus. We say, Evie, did, did Jesus deserve to be disciplined? No. He didn't do anything wrong. So that makes it all, all the more 
remarkable that Jesus died on the cross. Jesus was the, the perfect lamb, the lamb without blemish. We were the ones with the problem, but, but Jesus died in our place. But John goes on to say, as he thinks about God being light, about God not doing anything wrong, about there being no sin in God, in verse 6 of 1 John chapter 1, he says, if we say that we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So do you see the logic there? John says God is perfect in goodness. He is pure. There is no darkness. There is no sin. He does nothing wrong. And if we say that we worship that God, if we say that we have fellowship with that God, while we are content to harbor darkness, to bring, as it were, darkness into that relationship, he says, that's incompatible. If you think that you have fellowship with God while your life is still marked by sin, you're lying. That's what he says. And that's not to say that you're perfect, okay? He'll, he'll go on to say in the same letter, no one is without sin, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, God will forgive us. But what he's saying is that Christians do not make a habit of sinning. Those that believe in God who is light are uncomfortable with their sin. They hate it when they sin. They confess it, that it's wrong and I shouldn't do that. They say, God, I need your help because I'm weak here and, and I know you're strong and I know you're light. I know that you would never do what I do. And so these verses are meant to help us evaluate. Are you walking in darkness? If somebody were to videotape your whole life, especially the secret parts of your life, are you content with sin? John would say, maybe you don't really know the God of light. Maybe your eyes are still closed. If your life is indistinguishable from the life of those that openly deny Jesus, if, if you are doing the same things, if you are living the same way, even if you're here right now, apart from that. So light has a moral, a quality of moral purity to it. And, and if that unsettles you, the question you should be asking is, how do I know what is light and what is darkness? How do I know what it means that God is light? What are the good things and what are the bad things? What are the things that I should be she's striving after and what are the things that I should be turning away from? And that, that brings us to our second point. If you look at verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. That's an incredible promise, isn't it? And And that word follows me. Why, why does he use that? That was, that was a word that, uh, that was common for a rabbi like Jesus to use. You think about where he's going around and he's calling his disciples. What does he say? Follow me. Follow me. And that meant for them, they knew exactly what that meant, that, that they were going to study Jesus' teaching, what he said with his mouth, but more than that, they were going to live with him and they were going to try and live the way that he lived. And that makes complete sense, doesn't it? If Jesus, who is God, lived a life of moral purity, then Jesus would be our example. Yes, Jesus is our substitute on the cross. He earned that for us by living perfectly, but his perfect life was also meant to be our example. We need to follow 
Jesus. So the disciples would follow Jesus around and they would see how Jesus interacted with people. They would see how he loved people. They would see what he turned away from and how he responded in this world of darkness. And by that, they knew how to live a life of light. So Jesus says, follow me. And even bigger, if you think about the the Feast of Tabernacles, there was that big lampstand. Well, that was supposed to represent the pillar of fire, right? That Israel followed. So it makes perfect sense. But then what we should be asking is, well, wait, I don't have a pillar of fire. That would be sweet. And I don't even have Jesus in the flesh. I have a spirit. But, but how am I supposed to know how Jesus lived in order to follow him and to live that way? Psalm 119.105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This is how we follow Jesus. This is our light. If you are here and you say, I believe that Jesus is the light of the world, I want to follow him, then you have to be committed to knowing these scriptures. You have to be committed to learning what these say because in these, God is revealed. God in his moral purity. Jesus in his path and his path that leads back to the Father. This is where you know what is light and this is where you know what is darkness. This is our instruction. So brothers and sisters, are you trying to navigate this life of darkness without turning on your lamp? Treasure this, value this, study this, ask questions about this. If you're new to this, there's lots of people here that aren't and they would love to help you understand. We gotta do this together, memorize this, meditate on this. If you say, I am so busy, which probably isn't true, but if you say, I am absolutely so busy, I don't have any time to read my Bible other than coming here on Sunday morning, then when you're sitting there doing whatever you're doing at work, when you're driving in the car, then just think about this sermon. Think about the sermons on Sunday morning. But you need to be chewing on and shining the light of God's word into your life. That is how we follow Jesus. God's word is a lamp to our feet. And lastly, my last application of this, Again in verse 12. You see, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but what? Will have the light of life. That's really neat. It's not they will see the light of life. They will have the light of life. It's, It's yours to hold on to, and it's yours to hold up and shine. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter Five, Jesus says, says this to his followers. You are the light of the world. That's mind-blowing. Jesus, the light of the world, looking at a bunch of Christians saying, you are the light of the world because you have the light of the world. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, Christian, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I've been thinking about this, especially as we're in the Christmas season, which, like I said, is a season similar to the Feast of Tabernacles. There's joy, there's excitement, there's lights. And there's lots of symbols that most of the people are not even aware of what they mean. I was at the the bookstore the other day, and they were playing a Christmas hymn on the the radio. 
on the loudspeakers in the bookstore. And not like, like a real one, not Frosty the Snowman, like a song about Jesus being the Lord of all of the earth and dying for the sins of his people. And there's people in the bookstore that are reading, you know, like smutty magazines and buying self-help books, you know? Like, and there's this music playing about Jesus Christ, their Savior. We're going to be interacting with family over the next few weeks. We're going to be talking to neighbors, maybe inviting neighbors to our Christmas Eve service. We're going to be talking to our coworkers, and this is a unique season, just like that festival, and maybe we can be like Jesus, and we can stand up, and we can proclaim to them, Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is what all of this is about. We can shine the light. Jesus didn't give you the light of life to keep it hidden. He gave it to you so that you can proclaim it. You can proclaim it, I love what he says, through your good works, through your living after the example of Jesus. And they see, wow, he's loving in a way that I'm not. He's considerate in a way that I'm not. He's self-controlled in a way that I'm not. I wonder what it is in him. And you say, it's the light of life in me that I have. But also that you can shine the light of God's word. You can proclaim to them this truth, that there is a way back to the Father and there is still time for them to believe and to see that Jesus is the light of the world. And look, when you do that, some people are gonna challenge you. They're gonna challenge your authority. They're gonna challenge your right to say that. But maybe there will be some like in verse 30 that believe. Let's pray to that end. God, thank you that you have not left us without instruction, that you have not left us in the darkness. You loved the world so much that you shined your light into it. This world that loves darkness, this world that loves sin. God, thank you for sending Jesus to shine the light of your radiance that we can know what you are like. Thank you for Jesus that, that died so that we could be raised in glorious light. Thank you for the hope that we have in the gospel that one day every cause of darkness will be wiped away and we will dwell with you forever in a world where there is not even a sun because you are our light forever. God, I pray that you would work through the testimony of Desert Springs Church, that we would proclaim this word to our friends, to our family, to our coworkers. And God, I pray that you would open up their eyes. You are the one that gives sight to the blind. Lord, would you help people see Jesus through the testimony of Desert Springs Church. We ask this in your name. Amen. If, if you are here and this is new to you, if something that I've said or something that we've sung has, has even piqued your interest, that's the light of God shining. Don't grumble. Don't, don't challenge it. Come closer and you'll see it get brighter and brighter. If you are here and you have questions, if you are here and you want to know more about what are we talking about, what are we singing about, what are we so happy about, come talk to somebody. Talk to somebody sitting next to you, or we'll have some leaders up here at the front. I'll be up here. I would love to talk to you about the light of the world. 
it's not too late. It's not too late. And for the rest of you, for my brothers and sisters in Christ, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. You're dismissed.